Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Scott. And I'm Dr. Shiloh. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the forensic psych topic of the younger side of con artists, individuals that scan the school system by pretending to be someone that they're not, sometimes going as far as lying about their age. This is Andrew from the Scary Mysteries Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and creepy true crime compilations on Mondays, and on Wednesdays we have our Twisted News episodes, where we get you up to speed on the most terrifying and strange news stories currently happening all around the world. We're covering the topics you want to hear about, missing persons, killers, UFOs, and more. Best of all, we don't waste your time with any fluff or fillers, just straight to the true crime details. So go check out the Scary Mysteries podcast, and I'll see you there. Our huge announcement that we've been teasing is our own live show happening in May. We are bringing you a -a one-of-a-kind experience of a live podcast show with three LA-based podcasts. We will be covering an infamous place and topic from each of our perspectives. We, of course, will be covering the crimes while the guys from LA Meekly give us all the background and history. And then Holly Weird Paranormal will bring us home with the reports of paranormal activities and ghost stories that are integral to the history of that location. And that's not all. After the show and a little meet and greet since we will be at the legendary Heritage Square Museum. You'll also get a haunted tour of one of the homes on the property. Dr. Scott and I have been planning this for a very long time with Heritage Square Museum from the first time we went there together. We're like, we have to do something here. (laughs) So we cannot be more excited to partner with them for the show. So get your tickets at eventbrite.com. The event is called Macabre Mansions and Haunted History, a Los Angeles podcast event. Link will be in the show notes and a portion of the proceeds go back to Heritage Square Museum, a really great organization. We love them. And the event is slated for May 20th, 2023. All right, everyone. So our last episode was episode 133, and that was our monthly documentary review of the film Long Shot, which is a very tightly told and engaging production that illuminates the power of perseverance and dedication. And Long Shot is the story of Juan Catalan, a young father wrongly accused and jailed for a murder he did not commit. Juan's only alibi, though, was taking his daughter to a Dodgers game at the time that the crime was committed. Longshot is definitely an accurate title for the story of a series of minuscule events and decisions that eventually exonerated an innocent man. And during that episode, Dr. Scott and I review the research on eyewitness testimony when talking about the weaknesses of the defense's case. So please go back and listen if you have not yet. What do we have today, Dr. Scott? Definitely. Well, today... The particular subject has been in the news very recently with two unusual cases, and it led me down a rabbit hole of how the act itself is definitely due to a range of motivations. And we're talking about individuals who lie about their identity and enroll in school. It can be as early as middle school, all the way up through high school and college. And while all adults, the imposters took on the identities of school children as young as 13 up to college age. So like I said, it's a wide range of motivations some of it driven by greed, a desire to game the system, a way to find easy prey, or is it a manifestation of emotional and mental health challenges? And the answer is complex and somewhat overlapping and really claims elements or bases in all of those factors. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you can try and guess along as we go along here, because we're really just going to highlight four cases and then discuss this. But don't forget that the techniques of the confidence man or woman factor heavily into this subject. All of today's examples exploited the emotions and trust of innocent victims, really resulting in the wide range of damage from mild to pretty severe. So not too much of trigger warning here. There's some allegations of sexual assault, but it's just kind of bad people doing bad things, but nothing too triggering, we think, today. In 2010, Adam Wheeler, a former Harvard student, was found guilty of 20 counts of larceny, identity fraud, falsifying an endorsement or approval, and pretending to hold a degree. He admitted to lying to the Harvard admissions office and stealing over $40,000 in grants and prizes. Wheeler had cheated his way into Harvard by making up SAT scores, forging letters of recommendation, and faking high school and college transcripts. He even plagiarized essays and and a research proposal to win prizes like the Hoops Prize, the Sargent Prize, and the Rockefeller Research Grant. So Wheeler arrived at Harvard in 2007 as a sophomore transfer student in Kirkland House. He lied about graduating from Phillips Academy in Andover, and he was getting perfect grades as a freshman at MIT. In reality, he went to a public high school in Delaware, although there's nothing wrong with that, but he was suspended from Bowdoin College for cheating, or as it is formally known at that institution, academic dishonesty. Oh, boy. What a guy. Already, I'm like, the effort it takes to do this. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but while at Harvard, he continued his ever-growing chain of lies. Out of thin air and with a true con man's creativity, he constructed a resume stating that he had written two books on his own and co-authored an additional four more with a Harvard English professor, as well as delivering lectures on Armenian studies and attained perfect grades at Harvard, of course, because he already said he had perfect grades at MIT. But in actuality, he received A's, B's, and 1D in his grades there. But during the ruse, Wheeler actually presented as a strong candidate and likely would have received Harvard's endorsement for one or both of those scholarships. But a professor, a keen-eyed professor, noticed similarities between Wheeler's quote-unquote work, and that of another professor, which ended up leading to an investigation into his real academic history. And Wheeler was summoned to a disciplinary hearing, but chose to just leave Harvard instead. And he later expressed some remorse for hurting those who had supported him along the way. But that's Interesting. It. So he <laughs> yeah. tails out. Yeah, exactly. And he expresses some remorse, but clearly that remorse did not stick around very long. But Assistant District Attorney John Warner said that Wheeler's dishonesty not only took money from Harvard, but also took opportunities away from other students who deserve them. Wheeler even wrote himself letters of recommendation from alleged professors to get into Harvard. He was sentenced to 10 years probation in order to pay restitution of $45,806 to Harvard University, as well as receiving mandated psychological treatment. His attorney requested a shorter probation period. However, Circuit Judge Kottmeyer declared that the 10-year probation was absolutely necessary. Wheeler's attorney requested a shorter probation period but Circuit Judge Kottmeyer declared that the 10-year probation period was absolutely necessary given Wheeler's compulsive nature. And she went on to assert that Wheeler continued to perpetrate his frauds despite university officials confronting him about the crimes that he later admitted to. Now, Wheeler's attorney went on to contest that restitution figure, but the judge ruled in favor of the prosecution. And in addition, Wheeler won't be able to write a book about his crimes or profit from them. That judge was not playing around. <laughs> I, Seriously. was. Do you know if there was a psych eval given? I'm guessing there probably was if they mandated treatment. 
I couldn't find anything, but there's there is a book that we're going to talk about that got written yeah. by a, a Harvard student that was there. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's interesting. Somebody else profited, but he didn't. Oh, true, true. But good on the judge for whether or not there was a psyche valve done and kind of relying on the expertise or just noticing like this, right. something's going on here. This is very compulsive. So we can't just yeah. give him a slap on the wrist. But yes, there is more. Wheeler may have fled Harvard, but he did not stop trying to pull the same scam on other universities, Wheeler submitted many more applications with false credentials to top-tier schools when a group of college administrators who were remaining vigilant about this rumored, well-presenting scam artist working his magic on Ivy Lee schools really were alerting each other of what was going on with this guy, like akin to sort of... It, it sounds like they putting... were calling, like Har <laughs> yeah. Harvard is calling, Yale is calling, Princeton is yeah. calling Stanford, yeah. I just imagine his like mugshot in the like admissions office, <laughs> like do not let this guy in. Previously, prosecutors had revealed that following his dismissal from Harvard, Wheeler attempted to transfer to Yale or Brown by falsifying his achievements and recommendations. However, Yale officials were alerted to the deception by Wheeler's own parents who actually had informed Ooh, them, yeah, that their son <laughs> had been expelled from Harvard and then his application was not truthful. So they must have gotten wind and were like, what can we do to stop this? Well, that's that's pretty that's pretty honorable. I mean, that's yeah. got to be a really tough thing to do. But, you know, as we've talked about in our episode on Confidence Men and this mm -hmm. phenomenon is that there's a certain constellation of personality factors that it's probably not the only time that they've been stirring something up. Right. So this well, might be one of those situations situations where the parents are like, we're not going to support this at all. But I also wonder if they're stuck now supporting him because he had to pay like $46,000 in fines after that conviction that they're like, we just can't. I don't know. And that's when you change the locks. Yeah. Yep. Well, in addition to those filed documents, prosecutors shared that Wheeler also applied to Stanford and the Williams College Seaport Maritime Studies Program at Mystic Seaport in Connecticut. So these additional applications are being presented as evidence during the trial of Wheeler's pattern of conduct as well as his methods. So they're saying he got a slap on the wrist, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, Judge Kottmeyer, well, no, it wasn't. It was really more substantial than a slap on the wrist, but he's still continuing it. And not to put any digs at William College Seaport Maritime Studies Program at Mystic Seaport in Connecticut, but that's not an Ivy League school. So maybe he realized yeah. like, hey, my jig is up at this point. So I've got to like uh, get to some more obscure schools. So author Julie Zalsmer, who was then a reporter at the Harvard Crimson, covered the incident from the minute that the news of Wheeler's indictment broke. That's not to say that there weren't other articles, though. Students were aware that this was going on, and the Harvard Crimson had several articles that we've referred to, so please check our show notes. But Julie went on to interview dozens of Wheeler's acquaintances, his teachers, professors, all of them who knew him throughout his academic pursuits. And her book, entitled Conning Harvard, Adam Wheeler, the Con Artist Who Faked His Way Into the Ivy League, was published in 2012. A commenter on the Crimson discussion boards adds, quote, one interesting aspect of the story is that Wheeler would not have been admitted to Harvard with his SAT scores. Yet once he was in, he was considered a strong candidate for prestigious scholarships. While cheating is not okay, some may argue that Wheeler proved himself deserving of a Harvard education by getting away with his lies for so long. Interesting. <laughs> 
I mean, they're saying it is he interesting was, because I'll tell you at the bottom, you know, he's putting in the effort, like we said at the top, like who has the time to do this and the effort and the energy. And that's like the effort and the energy you want to see out of a good student. So I kind of get what they're saying. I mean, I get what they're saying. It's also, I, I would not say that it's disgruntled, but I was fascinated to click on the research links, click on the articles there on the Crimson and see, you know, we're looking 10 years ago now or a little more than 10 years ago and a bunch of Harvard alums and current then current Harvard students were all commenting on it. And there was some pretty harsh stuff about mm. Ivy League schools. There were several comments saying, you know, it's just about getting in the school. Like, ah. it's not that the education is better. So there was back and forth about whether or not the grades were all that important. And I mean, he did work really hard, but he worked at stealing. He stole opportunities and he stole, you know, scholarship money. That. Although that's not that's not a lot of money. I mean, 40000 for someone that's going to an Ivy yeah. League school is not that much. You know, it's so difficult and crazy to get into these schools that at least once he got in, even though by fraud, he was able to hold his own for a little bit as a student, I think is what sounds like people were saying kind of uncovered. Yeah, it sounds like it. So what's your overall take on it? Well, I mean, I think firstly, it's like, well, what the fuck is this all about? Like, what is he doing to a logical person? You would be like, okay, is he doing this so he can get a good education and then move on to a high paying job so he can live comfortably in his life, even though he's doing it by cheating to get there initially. But I mean, there is this flair where it feels like he's doing it just to do it and the challenge and the risk-taking piece, which is a whole other thing. Right. He doesn't seem to be learning anything from the risk that he's investing in. Right, right. Right. Yeah, so I he's agree. gotten caught. He gets caught over and over again and his impulsivity or something kind of overrides that. I mean, one of the things that is very plainly talked about in the college system within Ivy League schools is it's more about the connections. Like you get in there, you get, I guess, a decent education. Although my professors at Antioch had a very, she went to Harvard and she had a very, very different opinion on mm. what the quality of education was like. But her take on it also was like people will go there for the connections. Yeah. It's because if you're a Greek or you're part of one of the systems there, it's like that's going to get you into one of those Fortune 500 companies or get you into an academic position with a lot of grant money coming your way. I think that there's definitely... In an example like this, I don't, I have never examined Wheeler. I've never seen the results of any psychological exams that was not available in our research. But, you know, a person who acts like this is definitely exhibiting some personality flavors, if not strong tendencies. I would say this shows, like most confidence men, a lot of antisocial qualities, not like yeah. not really caring what the consequences are, as well as some narcissism and definitely impulsivity. His own personal grandiosity and thinking that he would not get caught when he was making outlandish claims about professors and other academics right there in his periphery is kind of yeah. wild to think about that. And like we've discussed in our confidence men episode, there's a reason that people fall for these kind of manipulators. And we pulled heavily from the confidence game, why we fall for it every time that was authored by Maria Konnikova. And she basically talks about the dark triad. There's psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. And I won't go into all of the Machiavellianism stuff, but you know, it's definitely found more in men. And it's about a tendency to fall into manipulation and strategies to socially engineer mm -hmm. the people around you. And while, yes, it is more prevalent in men, it can occur in, in anyone, including children. So 
So yeah, there's True. a lot going on there. Yeah. So when we think like, okay, what is this all about? It's not that logical road of like, okay, he's cheating to get like a means to the end. No, there's something more driving him for this impulsive and as the judge labeled it, compulsive issue where yeah. it it is just to sort of keep chasing this risky behavior and getting away with it. So definitely what we see right. When we look at folks with psychopathy and some of those narcissistic traits. But yeah, I mean, even in the paradigm of Machiavellianism, you know, they break it down into high and low mocks, yeah. whereas a high mock individual would be someone who prioritizes their own well-being above and beyond everyone else and all else. That's the most important. Right. right. So he doesn't give a shit if like he's taking away the opportunity for someone else who's been working their butt off for this all their life or what have you. They also subscribe to the belief that deception is necessary to get ahead in life. So this mm. is like one of their core beliefs that no, this is absolutely necessary. And they do not trust in the inherent goodness of humanity. So uh, that sounds like a really scary combination. <laughs> no wonder this is under high mocks. And yeah. then they they view dependence on others as naive and prioritize power over love and connection, which makes me really wonder what his relationship was like with his family, since we hear them sort of telling on him, what was that dynamic like? So on the other hand, low mock individuals tend to exhibit empathy towards others, and they do value honesty and trust. They have some faith in the innate goodness of humanity and believe that adhering to moral principles is the key to success in life. However, it's important to note that being too low on the mock scale can lead to submissiveness and excessive agreeableness. So this is, again, like you're looking at a scale of a trait and it doesn't mean low mock doesn't mean that there's like this this sort of evil, dangerous Machiavellianism present. It's just the, the total opposite end from what we see with the high mocks. Yeah, and they could still be driven by personal gain, mm -hmm. but not have all of those sort of antisocial qualities that you were talking right. about in the high mock. At least that's that's what I took from it. Yes. Okay, so moving on from example number one, we have another Ivy League example, a Mr. William Curry. Stanford University finally removed William Curry, an Alabama native and 2021 high school graduate, after he had been living in various parts of residential housing for almost a year. His successful tenure on campus came despite multiple reports by other students and what appeared to be really kind of half-hearted attempts initially by school officials to quietly remove him. The school had had him escorted off campus multiple times, but despite his continued returns to the school, the administration failed to warn staff, residential staff, and students. Hmm. Well, so Curry managed to move from residence to residence, sometimes couch surfing, sometimes sleeping in the lounge areas and spending most of the days in the computer room or dining hall. He was successful in fooling many students by making acquaintances with some of the athletes on campus. And it was confirmed that Curry lived in at least five student residences and harassed multiple students during his time living on campus. And whenever he was removed from the campus, he would immediately return and live in the dorm building next to the one he had just been kicked out of. So he was able to do this because Stanford chose not to inform, again, the residential staff about his activities or post even a notice about him. And this is like really already super concerning behavior. What are they doing? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I would love, in all of the articles that 
I read and we'll be, of course, posting those in our show notes. That was the element that like clearly seems like it was being avoided in discussion. Like, and maybe that's for liability issues. Maybe Stanford used their ability to kind of quell the attention on this, but this is incredibly dangerous. And his behavior really actually, at first it's like, well, this is a canny young man who like, Maybe he's trying to find a way in, but he's also not presenting as a, an academic. You know, he's just sort of hanging, hanging out. out and partying. And also because he's old enough, he was able to buy alcohol for the other mm. students. So I'm sure that endeared him to some of the underclassmen. But it is reported that he engaged in a relationship with a Stanford, a Stanford student, a young woman, and the two dated from about December 2021 to the end of January 2022. So not, not a very long time. And when she was interviewed, and she remained anonymous. She said that she thought initially that he was a transfer student from Duke. And Curry told her that he lived in an apartment off campus. But after their breakup, Curry is reported to have stalked her as well as gained access to her iMessage account by, I guess, somehow he got her password on her phone. I don't know how that's possible, folks, in, in this day and age. Do not give anyone your password. Especially to a dude a... you've dated for a month. <laughs> not yeah, that I'm saying I, I mean, she gave just... it to her him. I mean, true. I mean, and, and who knows, maybe he went to some, he may have gone to extraordinary means to yeah. obtain that information too, yeah. but we don't, we don't really know that. But he wrote several threatening messages to her when he discovered that she was dating another person. Mm. So after returning to campus and taking up residence in yet another dorm room, only 1000 feet from where he had just been removed, he then presented himself as a Duke University transfer student. And he again, totally integrated himself into several social groups of students and even went so far as to publish a Tinder account. And one student noted that even without an actual bedroom, he never appeared to repeat an outfit, which I have some thoughts about after this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then a, another incident happens where a young woman actually returns from a weekend trip and finds Curry sleeping in her bed. And then it's reported that he attempts to access a different room while another set of young women are in there trying to keep him from coming in. So even after these two really scary incidents happened, it wasn't until he had actually stolen a television from someone's residence that the campus finally takes action. So Curry's motivations seem somewhat different driven than our other example so far. At one point during his tenure, he was seen removing another student's property from a dorm, which led to an official stay-away order. And while our previous example showed evidence of fraud and stealing resources, Curry was at least on these occasions found to be stealing actual property. So I want to share this quote from one of the articles that I found. The unique aspects of Mr. Curry's persistence and ability to integrate himself with our student community has made it clear that gaps exist in those protocols. And this was school spokeswoman D. Mustofi, and this was reported in the New York Post. She went on to say, we will immediately undertake a review to ensure our procedures do not allow for this type of incident to happen again. Well, no shit, Sherlock. Yeah, no, I hope so. It's terrifying. My God. Yeah, I, and it should never have gotten to where, I mean, it just the lack of communication in this particular situation yeah. was really frightening. It seems like a, a kind of opportunist, but more, how would I describe it? It almost feels like more of a survival track than mm. Wheeler's, than our first example. You know, it doesn't seem indicated anywhere that he was making attempts to enroll as a student or create an academic identity from this. Like I said, it feels more like survival and yeah. making connections. I thought it was interesting that the female student noted that he never wore the same thing, but it, you know, it occurred to me in my experience of 
having been in college that most guys have a very limited (laughs) wardrobe. You know, they're just always wearing sweats and t-shirts and Right. You know, so barely I don't know them, how much you know. <laughs> that holds. Yeah. Yeah. It, this but apparently one is... he was very well groomed. That was the other thing. He was very well groomed all the time. You know what that gives me like reminders of is Dirty John, because remember he would like yes. his scrubs were kind of gross, but like he was always really careful to be well groomed and things like that, even though he was kind of homeless when he was courting his victim. But yeah, so to me, this one feels really heavy on that one psychopathy trait of living a parasitic lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Very good point. I, I would love to know where that comes from because why why choose Stanford University instead of just kind of like making friends with whatever, wherever your hometown is or couch surfing there? Because I think I know you said he was old enough to buy alcohol, but if he, in doing the math, if he had graduated in 2021 from high school, if that's true, maybe that part isn't true. He's quite young. I mean, he was doing this as like an 18, 19 year old. So that's one super super concerning that he's like doing this already. But again, just like why Stanford? But you see this risk-taking grandiose mindset again of like sort of getting one over on an institution that should know better. Yeah. I'm looking back now and I'm going to correct myself. So it's not that he was, it doesn't say that he was buying them alcohol. It says that he was providing them alcohol. So I mean, he may have had other means to do that. I think it's interesting just about like, if we look at the geography from if he's coming from Alabama and you think about a map, it's almost as far as you can possibly get from, it's like, I'm going to completely go to the other side of the country and and reinvent myself. Huh? Yeah. You know, just, I mean, maybe, maybe there's something that, that ties into that. Very interesting, but I do like that sort of, you're honing in on the parasitic trait there. I think that's very, very apt. Yeah. It just, it, I feel like there's not enough here yet. And especially as a young man to kind of know what's going on, but gosh, his, his background history would probably be fascinating to put together with what his yeah. behaviors are. So, so we have another example here, an example with a woman this time. So on January 26, 2023, Hai Zhang Shin, a 29 year old woman was arrested and charged with providing falsified documents to officials at New Brunswick public schools. Shin had been attending classes at the high school for four days before her ruse was discovered. During her time at the school, she spent time in the guidance office, collected phone numbers from teenagers, and even continued to text former classmates after her crime was revealed. So Shin is a South Korean citizen, and she came to the United States by herself when she was 16 to attend a private boarding school. And her attorney said that she later graduated from Rutgers University in 2019, which would have been four years prior to her enrolling in this high school. Yeah, something seems to have gone really awry. And Shen's lawyer asserted that she had no malicious or criminal intent, but that she had enrolled in school because she was lonely. And he quoted her as saying, she was just seeking to return to a place of safety and welcoming environment that she looks back on fondly. Shen was charged with a third degree crime for providing false birth certificates to school officials. And in New Jersey, schools are required to provisionally enroll everybody. I mean, all children, Mm -hmm. not every Everybody. Even if there is an absence of the records that are generally provided to verify identity or prove that they live in the community. But students have 30 days to provide all that additional proof of identity or the district has the option to declare them ineligible 
to enroll in class or attend class. Once the school staff had determined that Shin had provided fraudulent information, immediately they notified the appropriate authorities. And as a result, Shin has been barred from entering school grounds and students have been advised to end all contact with her. So she was only there for four yes. days, but yeah. clearly they were on top of it way better than Harvard was. <laughs> than Harvard or Stanford. Definitely. Or Stanford, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. So about 10 students showed up at the Board of Education meeting after all of this to express their concerns about the incident. And although it's reported that the students wanted to speak out about their concerns and experience, they weren't allowed to because there's a rule that requires speakers to basically register in advance and they didn't know about this. But the students did speak with a report afterwards and told a New Brunswick Today reporter that Machine had requested to meet at least some students that she met at a location outside of school. Another Ooh. female student shared that the night before Shin's arrest, she had received a text from the adult that left her feeling frightened for her safety. The contents of the message are not available, but the student went on to tell reporters that, quote, all I wanted to do was make her feel comfortable in a new school. And if she has the ability to falsify documents, enter a public high school, have close contact with young students, she has the ability to do anything. So very insightful from a student. Yeah, very, very well stated. So like I said, she was only on the school campus for about four days. But in that time, she obtained the phone numbers of several students who had wonderfully taken it upon themselves to help this new student navigate their way through school. And like we said, alarmingly, she continued to text some of them even days after her removal from the grounds. So she was barred from entering school grounds in the district and officials have strongly warned all of the students against further contact, like you said. You know, it's so recent, Dr. Shiloh, that they're, we don't know what they're going to do with this. Like, huh. you know, maybe it'll get referred for a diversion program yeah. or maybe they'll see if there was some sort of emotional or mental health impact that she was experiencing. But, you know, it's, it's I mean, I got to say the defense tactic is pretty smart, you know, that she was seeking to return to a place of safety and comfort, the idea of going back to high school. On surface, it's a good thing because we think of this poor woman and then you go, oh, wait, we get, let's flip it. Let's flip it and say if it was a 29-year-old man totally. that was doing the same thing, you clearly go, no, 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 this is not appropriate at all in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think at first this feels like really sad. Right. There's this lonely woman yeah. who wants to get that feeling back from probably, you know, quote unquote, the prime of her life. And she's an immigrant that came here on her own when she was 16. So, you know, you think like what what relationships did she build when she was here or didn't? Right. What kind right. of life is there a support up? system? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, she did boarding school and she went through Rutgers University again. Like there's it, it's so soon. We just don't know. But I feel like she would really benefit from a strong course of culturally competent psychotherapy to focus on her issues of self-identity. But I just want to know more also about the communication that made those students feel uncomfortable. Like, is there a dangerousness aspect to her behavior or was she just super desperate to connect? I don't know. It was just it's yeah. hard to say. Which kids can pick up on too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So for our final example, we have another woman named Treva Throneberry. She's a woman who posed as a teenager and she changed her name to Brianna Stewart, fooled everyone for years by going by a number of aliases 
across the country, like so many, (laughs) too many to list. No wonder we saved this one for last. I mean, she attended proms. She played tennis. She even graduated from Evergreen High School in 1997. So when Treva was at the school, but known as Brianna at that time, perhaps She had many aliases. As a woman pretending to be a minor student, she claimed that she was raped by a man that I think was a staff member at the school. And he ended up pleading guilty to having sex with a minor and was sentenced to 50 days in jail. Interesting sentence there, but we can't digress. We got too much here to unpack. But after her fraud was exposed, the judge went back and expunged his conviction because she actually wasn't a minor. So that charge couldn't hold up. I mean, there could be other things that could be entertained as far as charges, but that one couldn't because she wasn't a minor. Right. So if she had been making the report, perhaps that she just reported that she had had sex with someone and it would, because even if she wasn't a minor, she could have claimed that she was raped, right? But it must have had something to do with consensual versus non-consensual and her age and all that. But apparently Throneberry made many false claims of sexual abuse, including that she was a victim of satanic ritual abuse. And the reason she did this apparently was to make money. During her late teens and 20s, she traveled across the U.S., like you said, gaining access to foster homes, colleges, and with any family that would take her in. And of course, because there are a lot of good people in the world who will fall for a sob story, she had a lot of places to go. And all of this happened while she was using these false identities that are too numerous to mention. Her father, Carl Throneberry, said she's just going cross country and using different names and receiving welfare. And at one point, Throneberry made her way to Vancouver, claiming to be homeless and framing her history as a cult survivor whose mother had been murdered by the cult leader of a satanic coven. Oh boy. All right. Just soaking that in for a second. In addition to the false claims of rape arising from her connection to a school employee, she reported, however, that I'm very also engaged in one. In addition to the false claims of rape arising from that connection to the school employee, she reported that she engaged in a romantic relationship with a high school male, although no rape charges are listed against her. That victim of emotional manipulation was interviewed in several papers expressing his emotional challenges and finding out that his girlfriend was, in fact, not a teenager. Poor guy. He comes across as really pretty heartbroken, expressing his love for her. And I can't even imagine what that feels like being a a high school boy in love probably for the first time and then feeling completely duped by this adult. It's awful. Yeah, I mean, she had a very interesting look like there are prom pictures with the two of them. Mm -hmm. And you look at it and you go, knowing she's an adult, you think, how can anybody fall for this? But if you kind of take a step back and go, she's she's unremarkable. In her mm-hmm. presentation. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying she's homely. I'm not yeah. saying any, I'm not making any ju- value judgment on her appearance. It's just that, you know, there's nothing that is particularly significant about her, her makeup that would set her aside and kind of like have you focus on her. And maybe yeah. that was one of the things that actually helped her. Right. She just you know, blends. as a tool to enter in. Yeah. She blends into all these situations. But Mary's trail of deception did not end in Vancouver because in Altoona, Pennsylvania, she went by the name Stephanie Danielle Lewis. And then in 1996, she attended 
a Texas high school under the name Emily Kara Williams when she was 27 years old. She was finally found guilty of defrauding the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services of $3,620. That was paid for her foster care. So that's mm-hmm. the money that they were saying, look, you, you took this away from us in order for us to pay the foster parents. She also defrauded Clark College out of $1,000 in tuition. And that tuition had been waived when she had claimed that she had this history of being a homeless teen. And the perjury charges alleged that she illegally obtained a state identity card under the name Brianna Stewart. Brianna's true identity was discovered after providing fingerprints in exchange for a birth certificate. Her parents later confirmed her identity after being contacted by the police. And everything indicates that the police are just like all over the place are going, who is this person? Like they're trying to figure it out because she's so convincing. Well, and has so, like there's just so much to weed through of all the different identities and locations and school records. I can't even imagine. So further investigation did confirm that Throneberry had a history of mental health issues. In 1986, she had been admitted to a psychiatric facility expressing suicidal ideation and threatening to harm herself. According to court documents, the attending psychiatrist asserted that she was diagnosed with a characterological disorder. And while Throneberry refused to communicate with her family during this stay at all, She was eventually discharged, and that was in 1986, and then transferred to a home for troubled girls. Such an archaic term, by the way, but it was 1986. (laughs) True. And it was basically a, a residential treatment center. And she worked on developing interpersonal skills, but she did continue to keep quite a distance from her family during her stay there. Which I think is pretty interesting. Mm hmm. You yeah. know, just having keeping that distance for I don't know what it what it means, and we don't have any information to that, but it is very interesting. There was really a great deal of controversy about her mental state and presentation during and after the trial, and there were assertions from various mental health professionals involved in the proceedings that she actually may have had trauma-related delusional or dissociative disorder. The court appointed psychologists in their assessments. They denied that she was delusional. And that she actually was completely capable of standing trial. And in the Texas Monthly, they confirmed through their research that Throneberry and her sisters were sexually abused by their biological uncle. So there was something there, whether or not it emerged as a motivator for all this, there definitely was something there. Yeah. For sure. So she continued to claim that she is Brianna Stewart, which led her defense attorney to seek these mental health evaluations before the trial. Throneberry was convicted and she was sentenced to three years imprisonment at the Washington Correction Center for Women in Gig Harbor, Washington. And she was released after serving two years and three months of her sentence. So this one seems it's a lot because I think there's a lot of elements going on that we just don't really know about, especially 1986 and people throwing around delusional and dissociative disorder and probably attorneys trying to get whatever they could to stick to the wall. But I think it has a lot of elements that we've covered before the aforementioned, you know, con men sort of elements. If there is a trauma history, how that sort of leading her down these roads of, I don't know, just trying to navigate her way through life through whatever means. But, you know, I think it's interesting just to revisit, not that this is exactly her situation in her case, and it doesn't seem like there was any sexual interaction between her and the boy that was her boyfriend. But we've talked about with female sex offenders who target adolescent boys 
usually teachers, right? Teacher lover scenario that there's these right. issues of very low self-esteem, a lot of depression, and just sort of feeling like their adult life is really disappointing or not kind of working out the way that they want, where it definitely is more emotionally driven rather than true deviant sexual interest. Although by nature of the crime, of course, it's deviant, but just different in which ways we see men sort of focusing on adolescent girls. When so you're talking about drive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like what is what is the need that they're trying to get met? And more often than not, it's that emotional connection, which what I, I would even kind of go back to the other female example with Shin. It wasn't sexual, but she was trying to get this emotional connection met back at a period of her life where maybe that was the strongest for her. Or it felt more easy to navigate, like you're saying. Sometimes, yeah. you know, now, like we talk about this and I talk about this with my clients in private practice all the time who are adults, how to navigate dating as an adult in today's world is incredibly hard. And, you know, you school has such a social element to it that work does not always have. So, sure. you know, how do you navigate the adult world when you would just want to go back and get that combined dopamine and serotonin flush from going back to a safe place that you knew when you were younger? That right. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, those were some doozies of cases there of fake students. <laughs> but we want to turn to our little entertainment sidebar here. And of course... Throneberry's case inspired an episode of Law and Order because, hey, where else are they going to get their material from, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Dr. Scott, did you know that the statistics show that almost 30% of the population of the U.S. will have their story recreated on Law and Order? Or at least on a spinoff? I'm I'm, I completely believe that. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure kidding, there's a research kidding, article that could prove that. <laughs> no links in the show notes for that one. I'm totally kidding. No. But yeah, in 2007, Law and Order SVU utilized almost an identical storyline, even though hers is very convoluted. And it was entitled Pretend with actress Misty Treya playing Cassandra Sullivan, a woman pretending to be a high schooler. So... You have some lines for we us, Scott? act out a scene. Yes, let's act out a scene. So I'm going to combine, I'm going to be both Benson and Stabler. Oh, of course. And well, you're going to like be- Like only you can. I know, really. <laughs> I'm going to combine them because I love both of them and I have a huge, huge crush on Elliot Stabler, Chris Maloney. Oof, okay, so I'm going to be guy. Cassandra? Okay, you're going to be Cassandra. Okay, so here's the setup. So it's revealed that Cassandra Sullivan, or as she's known, Denise Pickering, had been involved with other high school boys. Riley wasn't the love of your life. You didn't love any of them. I did. I loved them all. So why'd you leave them? They got older. I didn't. <laughs> That's so dazed and Dun -dun. confused. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah, it is. It's like, exactly. It's like the female version of Matthew McConaughey. Yes. Although this is like the way they frame that is actually pretty twisted. Like, ugh. Yeah. You're like, right. yeah, I'm not kidding. Because he never says that he's the opposite. Like he says, I'm getting older. They stay young. They stay the same She's saying, age. <laughs> yeah. She's saying, I'm not Ew. getting any older. Yeah. But let me give... <laughs> Another example that I just love. This is one of my favorite schlockological horror movies. Oh, Orphan. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. Orphan with the best tagline ever. There's something wrong with Esther. I just <laughs> nice. love that. I know. From day one, I love that tagline. So it was released in 2009 and it was directed by, I think it's Jaume Kaletsera. And the movie features a really great cast yes. of Vera Farmiga, Peter Sarsgaard, Isabel Furman, CCH Pounder, who's always great, and Jimmy Bennett. And the plot is about a couple after the tragic loss of their unborn child, they decide to adopt a nine-year-old girl with a mysterious past 
from an orphanage in Estonia. However, they soon discover that their new daughter is not what she seems. And then they find themselves in a terrifying battle against a psychopathic child. I just love this one so much. CCH Pounder gets killed in this and it's so brutal oh. that I like, I had to laugh uncomfortably. It was so I know. sloppy. I love her. It was so great. Psychopathic child in air quotes, if you have Yeah, child in air quotes, definitely. <laughs> but we want to give one, uh -oh. I mean- to really go to this place of humor, I have laughed about this particular case for years because I remember when we were doing our internships was when all this stuff started bubbling up. And uh -huh. it's just such a complete craptastic, like weird irony of, of talk about cops trying to figure out what's going on. Neil Havens Roderick II, who had been living under an alias of Casey Price, was arrested in January 2007, along with two men that he had fooled and a possible cellmate. So the Yavapai County. County Sheriff's Office in Prescott, Arizona, described the situation as extremely strange oh because prior to this arrest, a man identifying himself as Price's grandfather enrolled the quote unquote 12 year old in the Mingus Springs Charter School in Chino Valley, Arizona. However, the guardianship papers and a birth certificate immediately were spotted as fake by the school officials. So they contacted the authorities completely the right way to do. And here it is like, yeah. here's an elementary school or yeah. a, a middle school that's doing a better job than an Ivy League school. I know. I know. So sheriff's detectives determined that the man posing as the grandfather was Lonnie Eugene Stifler. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know, I 61 years old, who had moved into a rented manufactured home in Chino Valley with Price and two other men just a month prior. Stifler and Robert James Snow, 43, a known offender, admitted to investigators that they had picked Price up at an Oklahoma hotel about two years earlier after they'd begun an internet relationship with him. They thought that he was a preteen and had exchanged explicit photographs with him. Let's say that. And the third man in the house, Brian J. Nels, 34, also an Oklahoma offender, said Price was actually Roderick, his former cellmate. I need a diagram for this. I know. I like literally we need a whiteboard. We need a whiteboard for all this. So Oklahoma Department of Corrections online records show that Roderick was convicted of lewd and indecent proposal to a minor in Grady County in 1996. He was released from prison in January 2002. Nellis was convicted of a lewd molestation in Katy County in 1997 and was imprisoned until July 2000. Nellis pleaded guilty in July 2005 to one count of failure to comply with Oklahoma Offenders Registry Act. He was sentenced to two years in prison with all but the first two months suspended. So this is all important because we're just kind of laying a groundwork, but this is a, a bunch yeah. of like really messed up individuals. But when Nellis, aka Price, aka Roderick, revealed his true age to the group, Diskin, Snow, and Stifler were shocked and angry. They had believed they were in a relationship with a 12-year-old, not a 29-year-old. It's like... <sighs> I'm just thinking of how disordered these individuals are, and they so badly wanted to believe that this was a 12-year-old that they were able to solicit off the internet <laughs> that they couldn't right. see past the fact that he was a 29-year-old. I mean, what do they think a 12-year-old looks like? I just, I, it's very strange. He was reported to have like like shaved ever, like all yeah. the, you know, he was always keeping himself shaved. He was wearing makeup, you know, so- like so either weird. they were deluded or they maybe they had really bad eyesight. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to say meth, but I, bad eyesight. Okay, that works too. True. 
Okay, so everyone will be happy to know that all four men were arrested and appeared in Yavapai County Justice Court. Three of them were held on $50,000 bond for failing to register as sex offenders, while Stifler was held on $100,000 cash bond for two counts of forgery and one count of hindering prosecution. All four were assigned public defenders. No child molestation charges were filed, of course, because the men were having a relationship with an adult, despite their belief that he was a child. The victim, again, known as Price, was a small man. And like you said, more makeup, shaved in his entire body, and he had the clothing and speech of a young person. Detectives fear that the men may have used Price to find other victims as he had successfully enrolled in other Arizona schools in the past, which is totally where my mind went. Like they're just, he's lure or he's, you know, bait on a, a fishing lure to roll in more kids. I don't know. Okay. So do you think that that's possibly that that was just all an excuse? Like this was a ruse? Like, no, we thought he was really a kid. I'm kind of, I don't know, Scott, you and I have seen and heard of some really weird shit when working in it's prisons true. and with sex it's offenders true. that yes, like all of the above would not surprise me. I don't know. Interesting. I mean, I don't want to minimize the possibility that Price may have been grooming other victims. But to me, if this particular narrative is correct, the outrage that I know. these guys expressed is just really funny. Like, how dare he? He's like 29. He's not a 12 year old. He's 29. Oh Ew, I'm grossed out. Oh, Look, my goodness. Wow. So what funny. a doozy to end on. I'm glad we had time for that. <laughs> I know. I know. And Jesus. on that note, folks, you know, yeah, thank you so much for sitting with us with another episode. This was a lot of interesting stuff. Yep. And I think it was a, a great one to go back and listen to our Confidence Men episode if you're interested to kind of give a larger framework for several of these examples. Yeah, definitely. All right, everyone. Well, we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not dash so dash confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential.